You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie at Action Pack Show for you today. I had the delight to hear two consummate practitioners say, if you aren't going to do the job, then get out of the way for those who will. Or words to that effect. The first one was a fellow 3CR broadcaster, Hope Mathubu, who is a nurse working on the front line of COVID testing. We will hear from her first. We follow up with an excerpt from a recent webinar from the Australian Institute about treaty and sovereignty to celebrate National NAIDOC Week. We follow up with a chat with Kath Larkin about her upcoming push to be Lord Mayor of Melbourne, the first... Victorian socialist in such a job. Let's hope she gets there. Kevin Healy gives a rundown of the week and we end with a chat with Andrew Fowler about his updated book, The Most Dangerous Man in the World, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks Fight for Freedom. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. I had the pleasure of tuning in to a Zoom put on by Socialist Alliance who were interrogating the place racism might be playing in Victorian COVID's response. There were some great speakers, but Hope Mathubu was brilliant as she illuminated the testing process and procedures that has been filling the waking time of every Melbournean during the COVID crisis. Now, I think that there are a lot of people who are really into Dan Andrews and the government, and that's fine, whatever. But I think that for countries like Australia and other places in the world, we have a lot of non-communicable diseases. So it's been a very long time since we've had a, a disease or an illness that's easily that can e- easily spread between people. Now, that is a levelling thing. We're all on the same page because you don't know who has it, you don't know who doesn't have it. We know the risks of getting it. Um, and we need clear messaging on what people can do rather than blame. Now, it makes me very... And, and now there are also simple things that can be fixed in this process 
process because this is a learning process where we're all in this together. You know, we're not like other countries where maybe you're used to Ebola coming every year. So you're always going to have a little bit of a plan. It's been a long time since we've been there. And the last time, you know, that we were there was HIV and AIDS. Or sometimes there's still a lot of communicable diseases that affect my small minority populations that are still ongoing and affect their everyday lives, like people living with HIV and AIDS and that sort of thing, but that don't affect us on this white population part. And I think that that in relation with us being an individualistic culture and everything like that, our processes aren't working and they're not working quickly enough and they're not really thinking about how people's behavior. And when we talk about people's behavior, we also have to account for the differences in privilege, in class, all of these things that we've avoided talking about, um, injustices and that sort of thing, that's coming back to bite us in the butt. Um, And now if we use those things against each other, we're undermining trust. The biggest thing when you're trying to deal with a public health issue is to have trust. And you need to find out who people trust in their communities and why and get those people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like in Ireland, one of the best things that they had was using postal workers to reach out to the elderly and doing welfare checks. We can put this back in the hands of community and it's community that have done the best jobs at addressing things that the government hasn't even really thought of. You know what I mean? And this isn't to bash the government. It's just to say that we know each other and we know our own people well. And if they'd stop to listen or stop to see some of the good things that other people had done, then we wouldn't be in this place, right? So for instance, the Black Lives Matter protest, they made sure that everybody was wearing a mask and tried to distance wherever, made hand sanitizer free, encouraged it for people, said to people, if you work in in, in a frontline position, here's the live stream, join us and, and try to mobilize people on the internet, whether they were missing out or whether they were there in person. We've only started to wear masks as a state this week. The evidence has been there from other places. Also, the evidence and the stuff that's coming up now, it's always been around, but about COVID, the risk of getting it going up in enclosed spaces. Some of these quarantine hotels, the corridors are so small and so tiny. The security guards have to do 12 hourly shifts. So they're sitting there and like two of them on different sides. Some of these hotels are windowless. There's no air, there's no anything. And except for these little 10 minute walks. So you've got a lot of mechanisms and a lot of people who need to work in synergy or in synchronization well with each other, but that doesn't happen. Shortage of PPE and who gets it, like a hierarchy of who gets what and who's paying for what and who's not paying for what. That also affects things. Another thing that affects things is I was told that I couldn't be swabbed on site when I needed to be swabbed when I could have potentially, I worked somewhere where someone had tested positive. And and that was really interesting to me. And it happened again when I was working in a hotel that had had previous outbreaks and someone who was quarantining in there who was a security guard, was asking for a test. And instead of swabbing him on site, they said, no, you're going to have to go out and initiate that by yourself. So even the ways in which we are supporting people who need to isolate, who could possibly be asymptomatic, is not working. There is a lot of things in this whole chain that aren't working, you know. Uh, There hasn't really been any clear keeping up. So, like, I'm a casual worker. I go everywhere. 
the DHSS team leaders are also casual. They go everywhere, or not casual, but ongoing. They are at different hotels. So sometimes you rock up to a workplace. Some people do things this way. Some people do things that way. And, and also the hierarchy. So I have a master's in public health, but I'm doing my nursing. There's so many times where I've bumped heads with nurses who are maybe younger than me, who maybe, you know, kind of have like a little bit of an issue, especially when it comes to my paperwork and the way that I do a job. So there's a lot of incomplete and missing data because I've had to say, oh, okay, I'm lower than you. And and there isn't like a teamwork environment where people will listen to each other about the importance of data. So you also have nurses who are just about testing and this and not about why are you refusing a test? Do you know, like we need to be having a conversation the thing with sexual health and HIV and AIDS and that sort of thing is about talking about these things and the way that people talk to security guards as well is like you're stupid if you don't know that or how many times do I have to tell you that kind of language that comes out around people who are also like non-medical and the way that we support them we need to be having conversations with each other not judging people um, based on on class or whatever but because of the old world that we used to live in sometimes you find doctors that aren't helpful. Sometimes doctors are just there because we need their signatures on the pathology form, but they sit around, people are on Facebook, people are having a great old time making money. They kind of got into this quarantine thing because it's, you know, it's fun and it's a change from their day-to-day life, but they're not there to be part of a team or part of a community. They're there to sign off. They're there because, you know, they need to swap or they're there because, you know, they, you know, they needed to make money because like they, the private place where they worked, you know, isn't really, you know, everything is COVID now. And some people are bored. Some people don't want to deal with the, you know, regular community members. So there's a lot of different people going through different things, but the messaging and the cohesiveness isn't there. It's lacking within the system and it's lacking in the way that they talk and deal with us. But we also need to look at the casualization of the health sector and the people who work in it as well. I mean, because some of the things that I'm highlighting is just that, you know, because elective surgeries were cut, um, you know, the, the, the contractor for, that provides the nurses and the doctors as well, we also need to look into that. So a lot of the nurses that are working are either from the private sector or a lot of them are from overseas. Um, and so they need to keep working as well. And so some of the decisions of when they take a shift and how they take a shift, it, you know, it's based on on their wage and money and that sort of thing. And there really is a situation sometimes you go into a quarantine hotel and if there's not that many people that need to be swabbed or a big job to do, people are just sitting around, you know? Um, And I think that we also need to look into, like a lot of PCAs like myself are international students or because I, you know, this is, I've done many degrees. I don't qualify for our study or any of that. So I've never been able to get any government help. So I need to be working in the jobs that I'm working in, as well as working unpaid doing, doing shifts in, 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 in the hospitals. The hospitals are also doing their own thing. So if you, if we can't manage the actual frontline workers as well, if you get people moving around, so you see some of this community transmission stuff that's happened in HK homes and in hospitals and in other places. So if the healthcare workers themselves and the casualization of health work leads to people moving around, that is a risk in itself. And everybody is moving around. There is no 
system for who works where and doing what. And so one of the systems I thought, and, and everyone's not properly trained. So some person can come in and it's their first time having done a swabbing shift or how I logged heads with the nurse that she didn't know that you have to write the reason why people are refusing a test. And she wouldn't listen to me. And she's like, I've worked many of this, uh, of these shifts. I've never done that. So I could see it's like, if you've worked however many shifts you've come you've possibly compromised data because you've gone with this way of working that isn't right and no one's ever called you up on it even the briefing meetings that we supposedly are supposed to have they aren't they aren't good enough and so you find people doing different things in different ways and it's not just security guards it's nurses themselves as well and I just think that the training and support needs to be done better for security guards, for nurses, for everyone across the chain, you know. And the other problem is that DHSS team leaders, some of them, they they seconded from other places, you know. Once I worked with this person who was from more Department of Environment and that sort of thing. So depending on operational needs, they'll all get sent to different places. So they'll twiddle their thumbs and they'll be like, well, you're the expert, you know what you're doing. And it's like, you need to have it together and know what everyone is doing as well. Like, so they've got no training in epidemiology or public health. So sometimes they stand there looking shy or looking whatever, not really knowing what to do or not knowing the difference between a a, a waste bag and a different bag. So sometimes the, you know, they're in charge of ordering the stock. And sometimes that stock may be ordered wrong because they don't know the things that they're dealing with. So I think that we need to standardize practices and have manuals or training for people to support them. Now, I'm not, you know, the other things that people are calling for people to resign or do this or do that. I think that it's important for us to realize where we could do things better. And I don't really have a heads should roll attitude. I just think that there's lots of things that need to go in there and be fixed. To be honest with you, I think that the people who should be yeah, anyway, look, I, I, I don't really know, but we need to fix things and we need to fix them quick. And we need to be honest about where there's gaps in knowledge and gaps in the process um, and, and, and get that fixed. Um, and, and that's it. So, you know, we shouldn't be classist. We shouldn't be anything because we're all learning from, from each other. But some people are getting paid heaps of money to do very little except sign forms and seem like they're in charge, but they're not doing anything. And they've been seconded from other areas but but they stand there like oh yeah good job good job done come back and take the credit now you gotta you you gotta go and learn something you know I don't want to see people sitting around if if it's not your job go go learn stuff about it and and that's the thing that annoys me is seeing people who are there just to get a paycheck just to get money and when things become complicated or when there's social issues that need to be learned about and and you know adapted to they don't want to adapt it's always the communities that should be adapting now the thing that makes me sick to my stomach is that those housing blocks have a lot of people who are frontline workers you know they didn't catch this because they were doing the wrong thing they caught this because they were unsupported in work now I am a a, a black woman who's gone I'm studying I'm doing this I'm doing that I, I I have we have to do everything for ourselves including supporting ourselves so we're out there serving you catching virus in the in in the same go and then being punished for it where's the justice in that and then it's our people who have to stand up and do something the thing that makes me ashamed is that where is the official help that's supposed to be the official help 
Do you know what I mean? I've got friends who are Somali who work in the DHSS. They never got phone calls to be like, hey, you're a Somali person who's connected with the community. They're never going to get a a rung up. I went into nursing because I couldn't really get like a long-term consistent job in public health, what I studied. Now it's like I'm this person that that people look at and it's like, who are you? What's your opinion? And it's like, actually, I've got a lot of opinions and all of this is crap. I know five people who could do a better job from the community that don't even have these degrees like this is this this is a shame and people need to start taking responsibility you either listen and learn or you get out of the way for those of us who know what we're doing and that's it this is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR community radio been here for a long time You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community news and music station. It is the final stages of National NAIDOC Week. The Australian Institute has been running some great webinars during COVID and this week the issue of treaty and sovereignty was discussed in a forum which included Jamie Lowe, Michael Mansell and Professor Mika Davis. Here is a little bit of what they said. The link for the entire event can be found on our podcast page. I mean, I'll, I'll just quickly touch upon sovereignty and other jurisdictions or treaties in other jurisdictions. And I think the point is correct that um, if you look to Canada, New Zealand and US, there is significant dissatisfaction with treaties and the way in which governments dishonour that. And I think we need to be hard-headed about that because I think there's a lot of utopian um, ideas out there about how treaty applies to Australia and Australia is a very, very different jurisdiction to other states. It's very hard to do what we're doing now, retrofitting recognition um, so far from dispossession. Um, And I think we need to be cautious about the things we talk about, including, you know, GDP, law and justice, all of those matters, because there's still the political work that needs to be done to make this happen. The Commonwealth won't come to the table you know, just on a, on a moral argument. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done before, um, you know, we can bring some of these big picture ideas even to the table, which, um, you know, I just want to emphasise the real vulnerability of, of state-based treaties and territory-based treaties to, to the political government of the day. Um, South Australia is a good example of, of, you know, Labor being voted out, Liberals coming in and then wham, it's all over. Um, and, and that's partly why the Uluru Statement from the heart, you know, why the dialogues felt like you needed some Commonwealth mechanism to help negotiate the kinds of things that Mick was just talking about. You do need a voice there negotiating this, um, and it needs some um, it needs some teeth um, um, because these are really complex um, agreements. Which leads to this next question, I suppose, about agreements with local governments. Look, communities can do agreements with whoever they want, really. First Nations. Um, and, and, and I suppose, and they already do, and, uh, and I guess, you know, we've been having that conversation about a lot of agreement making looking a lot like um, service delivery models, right? That's not, that's not what treaties are about. If people want to negotiate with um, local governments, you know, that, that, that's, that's an important, you know, First Nations can do that. Um, but at the end of the day, you need a coordinated approach across the Federation. Um, uh, because you can do, you know, it's 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 a very they are they are complex legal agreements, and and I keep saying that not to kind of make it sound 
elitist, but when, when you do travel to other countries, you have treaties. Um, it's, it's like a lawyer's, you know, picnic. It's great for McMansell. You've been treaty lawyer. Um, but, but it is. It, it is a lawyer's, it's a, it's a legal document. It needs to be interpreted and it often ends up in court, the interpretations. And Jamie's right. Like, there are, there are ongoing negotiations and there's ongoing conflicts with it. It's, it's really important for us to understand. And I think Mick and I agree on this. It's, not, it's certainly not the panacea. You need multiple kind of mechanisms at play in the system. You know, he's referred to reserve seats. Um, um, you know, I referred to the voice to parliament. You, you know, you need multiple mechanisms to, to have leverage here at the table. Um, so you'd say, uh, Megan, that a, an agreement with local government is not a treaty it's just an agreement and shouldn't be called a treaty because a treaty deals with the bigger stuff. Man, so um, I don't know if I said, you know, treaties, you know, when you talk to communities about what treaties mean, and this is why the UN takes the approach of treaties, agreements and constructive arrangements. I mean, they can mean many things to many people. I think treaties they use historically, at least the international level, to apply to those historic treaties, right? The, the, the ones that were signed at first contact um, and, um, and set out that, relationship and legitimacy for Indigenous peoples in the population to, to, to follow. Um, I, I would probably say that, um, yeah, treaty or agreement, whatever it's called, um, and I, we know that originally in the 80s, the word Makarata was used to apply to this because it is a process, right, Jamie? It doesn't take, it's not, it's not, it takes a long time to get there. Um, and the process is really important in terms of who's at the table and who, what you're negotiating and what's in and what's out. And I think that's part of some of the um, sentiment that was in the dialogues is what, you know, because of native title, for example, we're not even talking to each other. We need healing before we can come together as a First Nation to do these negotiations. Whereas some First Nations are ready to go now, probably. Um, so there's, it's just, we're all at very different stages um, and, and, and the process is really important to contemplate how will that be set up um, and how will it apply across across the federation? But um, you know, you can you can call anything you want. I, I think. A well, the federal parliament could legislate it tomorrow. Hey? The federal parliament could draft. The federal parliament could establish a treaty commission tomorrow through legislation, and doesn't. the treaty commission could take a draft treaty around Australia and say, <laughs> "Here is a draft. Is it workable?" And that could come back to the federal parliament and they could vote it through, and it becomes a treaty. That's how simple it is. Well, well Michael, that's precisely that, what we've done in Victoria. We established a treaty commission. Um, you know, that was about four or five years ago now. Now we've got the assembly, which is established late last year. So there is a process, but we need a starting point. And if that's a starting point, I think we just need to get on with it and do it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the mechanisms are there, Mantle, but it's not, it's not that simple. It's, 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 look, look, they're four or five years down the track, right? It, What's it stopping us from doing that, Megan? Hey? What's stopping us from doing that, putting well, the treaty up to the parliament? To, well, you, the Commonwealth's not coming to the table, right? Well, to Richard's point earlier, the political will, uh, nothing else stopping it but, but bar the political will. I think to the to the question though around kind of local governments and um, and you know traditional owners being able to negotiate treaties with local governments, I think I, I think local governments are critical um, because that's where the relationship sits. You know, everyone lives in local government areas. Yeah, there's 532 local governments 
across the state, across the country. It's pretty big. I think it's 532, might be 533. But that, but there's the good and the bad and the ugly of local government. So if you're, if you, if you can build a, a relationship with your local government and be able to negotiate, you know, what's um, under their powers to negotiate um, with them through that, I think all power to you. But I think they're a crucial kind of mechanism to, um, to you know, build relationships with the local well, community. Well, that's the interesting thing about the Noongar Settlement 2015. Like, we might remember that they got, uh, I think, 1.3 billion. The Noongar Settlement in southwest Western Australia was legislated by the West Australian State Government, gave $1.3 billion worth of funds and land over a period, I think, of... 10 or 12 years. 10 years, I think, Michael. Yep. Was it? Yeah, 10 years, something yep. like that. Uh, thanks, Jamie. Uh, but one of the interesting things was that once the 300,000 hectares of land was given back to the Noongar people, it was subject to local government jurisdiction. Now, when the white people, before the white people came here and took the land off the Noongar, they were not subject to the local government authorities. They didn't have to pay rates and taxes. Uh, it, it was They were exercising sovereignty. So one of my criticisms of the Noongar Agreement is that the West Australian government, sh because they went that far, all they had to do was to say, well, the return of land is not subject, subordinate to local government. These people get their land back and they don't have to pay rates to any local government. So, you know, that's something... I don't think we're beneath the local government. I think we should be above it. I've been a unionist all my life Supported all the stop works and the strikes Thankful for the hard-won gains been proud to see the bosses tame And I just can't stand those who don't join They seem to be coming an increasing throng Of workers who take Union One conditions But don't want to pay the annual subscription Join the bloody Union If you got any conscience Join the bloody Union If you got any common sense don't ride on the backs of your hard-working mates Whinging about freedom and high union rates As far as I'm concerned, they can all go to hell Give up all the conditions and pay rises as well Work 12-hour days for under-award wages Suffer exploitation like the Middle Ages Join the bloody union if you got any conscience Join the bloody union if you got any sense Don't ride on the backs of your hard-working mates Whinging about freedom and high union rates Freedom not to join is a philosophy we don't need Belonging to the bosses and the right-wing creeds Do your duty and get a union card And be welcome at any place or yard Join the bloody union if you got any conscience Join the bloody union if you got any sense Don't ride on the backs of your hard-working mates Whinging about freedom and high union rights Oh, come and join the bloody union 
If you got any conscience, join the bloody union. If you got any sense, don't run on the backs of your hard-working mates, whinging about freedom and high union rights. listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. I have to say thanks to Graham Licht, uh, a listener who gave us the recording of his song Join the Bloody Union and say sorry Graham, I'm sorry I didn't get back to you, I just didn't see the message but it finally got through. Thanks to Graham, much appreciated. It's a perfect intro to our next chat with Kath Larkin who tells us about her Victorian socialist bid for the Lord Mayoralship of Melbourne and finishes with some information about working at Flinders Street Station as a delegate for the Rail, Bus and Tram Union. Hello, Kath speaking. Hello, Kath. How are you? It's Annie. Good. What's, what's going on? Good. I heard that you were going to put your hat in the ring for the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, and I thought, oh, this is yes. really fascinating. <laughs> Tell us all about what the Victorian Socialists are doing and why you're doing that and what that means for you. Yes, I guess um, the Victorian Socialists want to challenge the kind of major parties that ordinary, ordinarily run well, basically every level of government um, in Australia we think that we need uh, you know, representatives for the community who are actually going to stand up for people, um, people who are going to put people before profit. You know, at the moment, both you know, Labor and Liberal parties um, you know, bend, by and large, to the will of big business. Um, and we can see that a lot through the, the COVID crisis, really, the, the crisis of um, COVID, you know, from the kind of neoliberal, uh, you know, the, the desire to reopen the economy, Daniel Andrews kind of bending to the will um, of right-wing commentators and then, you know, the privatising and outsourcing of security guards in COVID hotels, like this, which put, you know, people at major risk having like these low-paid workers, uh, dodgy subcontractors who didn't have proper access to PPE, didn't have proper infection control training. And then, you know, you look at things like, the state of public housing, the fact that they were left in such dangerous conditions despite residents calling out and saying that there needed to be more cleaning, that there needed to be you know, information in other languages. Like none of that was done, um, which I think just, you know, the, or, or if you look at now the, the opening of the schools, um, despite the, the obvious outbreaks that have happened at El Paco College, like all of this is geared around putting the economy first and, and when they talk about economy they're talking about you know profits for the big end of town we really need an alternative sort of politics that's going to put people first and going to you know fight for public health fight for workers rights take a stand against racism all of these sort of things so actually put uh, have the presence of the people in the discussion that's right yeah that's right like i'm um, i'm standing for lord mayor of melbourne um, I'm a frontline worker. I've worked in the city for many years. Um, and actually, it's workers who make our whole city run, whether we're serving you in the, the, the you know, restaurants and cafes, the uh, nurses and doctors and medical staff who you know, work in the hospitals, the people who are teaching our students, the people making the trains, trams and bus run. Like The whole city is run by working people but we don't have any say over our city 
And in fact, in Melbourne, it's one of the only uh, councils in the entire country where business owners, non-resident business owners, not only get a vote, but they get two votes, um, and as do non-resident landlords. And that allows them to outvote the actual residents um, of this electorate. You know, it means that, for instance, the 3,000 uh, people in our housing blocks, you know, don't, uh, can be drowned out by business interests. And meanwhile, while all of these bosses get a vote, the people who are actually working in the city don't get a vote at all. So uh, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, you're not politically unaware. Uh, uh, you're an astute person. No. And, uh, I mean, you're part of a group of people who live and breathe politics effectively. But also uh, you're uh, a delegate in your own workplace. So that means that you yeah. you will actually be an effective operator because you understand how politics and power work. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's a different sort of politics. Like, I think politics has got a real dirty name. I mean, you look at the, the sort of the, the Somurek stuff that we've seen from the Labor Party, just these cynical power players who are just grabbing at power for power's sake. You know, they use that to have coalitions and work with um, the wealthy and screw over ordinary people. Like, so many people don't vote or, or you know, vote but kind of are frustrated when they vote because they don't see people who represent them, whereas for socialists, um, our whole you know, idea of politics is about class struggle. It's about ordinary people uh, taking a stand in their workplaces on the street um, and, and fight, fighting to challenge the kind of status quo and the, the corporate interests that, that run politics today. How did, what's the process of uh, putting your hand in the ring? Tell me about that. Um, well, you, I mean, you, you just sort of, I guess, like any other um, electoral process, you nominate. So the nominations for local council are still some time away. Um, so we've not done that, but we are preparing um, our ground campaign um, because obviously we don't get uh, corporate backing. We don't have a whole lot of money. Um, our strength has always been, um, Victorian socialist strength has always been in inspiring people um, to get out there and campaign with us and, and take a stand. So it's not just uh, you for the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, it's uh, all across Melbourne? Uh, no. No. Mm, tell me. Yeah, yeah so, so in um, in Melbourne, um, I'll be running for the, the Lord Mayor position. We think the, a frontline worker should be the Lord Mayor of Melbourne. Um, Daniel Gadditch uh, is our Deputy Lord Mayoral candidate. Um, Daniel's a social worker who works with refugees and migrants. Um, a person of colour with a long history of standing up to police harassment and fighting racism. Um, Christopher Di Pasquale, who um, was a leading member of the campaign against racism and fascism, and also the National Union of Students LGBTI officer, um, is uh, running as one of our councillor uh, positions. He now works um, as a teacher in the city and so has been involved in um, you know, also fighting for... Um, you know, workers' rights and students' rights um, throughout his kind of activist um, career. But then we have candidates running in a whole range of councils, um, Maribyrnong, Darabin, Moreland. Great. Okay. Now, can I just change to the subject? Uh, because you work as, yeah. as part of the, uh, you know, you're a, a worker at the... Uh, 
in a, a public transport and the RBTU has put out a direct or what they they would prefer that travellers um, wore masks which seems completely reasonable to me uh, can you tell me how people are faring? Because uh, all you guys have been working all the way through the COVID and uh, I've a great deal mm. of uh, respect mm. to you for it. Can you tell me how, what, what's going on for the workers? Yeah, so I'm a rail, tram and bus union RTBU delegate at Flinders Street Station. Um, and it's, you know, we've, yeah, we've worked all the way through this pandemic it's been on us really from the very beginning to fight for the most basic safety measures, you know, like even you know, we ha- early on we had, you know, real debates about making sure we actually had access to hand sanitizer at the beginning of this pandemic in our meal room. We didn't even have running water. Like that was something that we had to get the union to fight for uh, to say, actually, it's not appropriate um, ever, actually, but particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, to not have you know access to decent facilities, um, so just it's been an ongoing um, kind of bat- battles around safety. Um, recently, we've had about four uh, people uh, based in the workplace test positive to COVID, and that happened in the space of around three weeks. So when you combine that with the fact that in general, as we've seen in Victoria, cases are going up. There has obviously been a reduction in people travelling, but there's still quite a few people coming through the station. Uh, it's, you know, start, people are starting to get pretty nervous, really. Um, you know, having four people in your, your workplace is bringing things pretty close to home. Um, lots of our members are older. Um, so many people have underlying health conditions. Like when you look at the list of things that, that make people vulnerable, um, diabetes, asthma, heart conditions, endometriosis, you know, um, and also a lot of the kind of uh, underlying, you know, conditions that that can make things worse are particularly common in working class people and and lower paid people. So there's a lot of our members uh, feel very much at risk. Um, But I guess as well as ourselves, people are concerned for their families and the people that they go home to. You know, I, I one of my workmates um, has been looking after her husband who's had cancer several times, you know, like there's you know, people with all sorts of like compromised, um, you know, health in, the, in their families who are really worried about what they might take back home. And so fighting to make the workplace as safe as possible is really important for us. So um, we are asking that, that travellers wear masks uh, the Victorian Socialists um, and the RTBU have put calls to the government to make masks compulsory on public transport and for those masks to then be supplied to people. We do not want to see this uh, as a way to punish and demonise working class people who can't you know, afford, afford a mask. Masks and hand sanitizers should be provided. They should at every train station, tram stop, bus stop, there should be hand sanitizer units. There should be uh, either people handing out masks or masks dispensaries so that you know if you forget your mask one day or you're unable to afford one you can still travel safely Um, we know from the health experts that wearing masks significantly reduces um, the likely spread of COVID we want to see all of our trams trains and buses being as safe as possible for all of our passengers we feel that we have a responsibility 
to our passengers and to the community who we've served throughout this period, um, but also for, for our safety and for the sake of our families. We're asking people um, as a kindness to us, uh, as an act of social solidarity, uh, to, to wear masks when they're on public transport. Um, and the kindness pandemic has recently launched um, the Mask Kindness Campaign, um, where they're encouraging people to, ha to help reduce the kind of stigma um, around mask wearing, to take selfies of themselves out and about in their mask, to post that to social media with, um, I guess, your reason. They're asking for statements of 10 words or less, uh, your statement about why you wear a mask um, with the hashtag mask kindness. Well, that's good. The other thing is I heard that uh, about the um, communication between uh, the people running the uh, transport system, the government and unions, mm -hmm. uh, there was a report of uh, uh, COVID positive testing uh, results for mm -hmm. some cleaners and that wasn't communicated mm -hmm. to the union, only through delegates. Tell me about uh, why we're all in it together until the power relations uh, appear <laughs> to be pushed. Yes, well, I, I don't think we've ever all been in it together. Um, we know that if you're poorer, if you're working class, um, then you, know, you, you do not have the support of your bosses. Various companies have fought tooth and nail to try to limit the use of masks to try to push responsibility on individual workers like this has been pretty common uh, in all sorts of, of workplaces. Um, but yes, uh, at, at my workplace, uh, we discovered basically through word of mouth um, that a cleaner had tested positive to COVID and we were never informed about this. Um, our employer was to later say, oh, look, we... We, we, we heard from the, the contractors who run the cleaning about this and we believed, you know, we, we understood that none of you were close contacts with the person and therefore there was no risk to you and that's why we didn't tell you. So that there's, there's been no apology for the fact that they didn't communicate it to us. Um, they've, put out, they've put out a communication to all staff defending their choice not to, not to let us know uh, that this happened, um, which is just really concerning. Um, people need to be able to trust their employers to give them this information. Um, obviously, there is a lack of trust between the, the, the workers in this workplace and our employer, um, which, you know, given that we had to fight for running water and hand sanitizer, you can kind of understand why people are pretty dubious about this, co this company's commitment to our safety. And so, yeah, we, we, we uh, put together uh, demands on the company that if someone tests positive to COVID, that person be given the option um, of being known to their workmates. But we understand that people have a right to privacy. But in that instance, people should know what shift that person worked. So if you worked that same shift, if you, if you were in the workplace as that person, then you were able to, to go and get tested. At the moment, the process is we have to rely on the person um, identifying who they remember being close to and then the company passing that information on to us. Uh, we don't think that that is the, the best policy. We think it would be better if we were told what shifts people worked uh, so that if you worked that same shift, you 
you're able to go and get tested. Wow, yeah, I agree. There was an interview with a fellow who mm -hmm. uh, was uh, tested positive. He was an auto uh, electrician who all he mm -hmm. did was go into one of the suburbs where it was uh, uh, prevalent and mm -hmm. uh, he tested positive. I mean, I mean, he must have passed somebody. That's just outrageous. Mm. The the other thing I wanted to know about was what's their clean. You know, they keep talking about the language is great and it mm. sounds sounds really safe, but deep cleaning. Uh, uh, it, what's the deep cleaning regime at uh, a place like um, Flinders Street? Yeah, I mean, this is probably definitely uh, um, a question that that's worth asking uh, United Workers Union members cleaners, but. Uh, from what I've heard from a lot of the, the cleaners is that deep cleaning, it, it's not um, like we, we hear this term and we imagine that there are certain standards and guidelines of, of what a deep clean means. Uh, but a lot of cleaners have kind of come out to say that's not really the case. Like deep clean is just kind of a term that we can use. Um, so, you know, we... We've been arguing that there needs to be not just cleaning but sanitising of regularly touched surfaces. One of our big arguments have been around the barriers at Flinders Street Station. We think that the barriers should be open um, at all major stations and this will still allow people who choose to to touch on and off, um, but it will limit the contact, the physical contact, that we have to have with regularly touched surfaces and passengers. If you've forgotten to, you've, you've lost your mikey, you've forgotten to touch on whatever it is, so if for whatever reason you need assistance getting in and out of the station, and there's lots of reasons for that, um, at the moment we have to walk up to where the barriers are, use a touch card um, and open the barriers via the, the, the touchpad, which means we are touching a card that is touching a surface that lots of other people are touching with an item that they regularly touch and hold. Um, so we think that this is really concerning and dangerous for us and for other passengers. Um, it also means that we have to, you know, by and large, you, know, you kind of end up getting closer to people. There's more reasons for people to come up uh, and often breach that 1.5 metres. It's all very well and good to say, you know, that you step back, but it's often kind of difficult in a customer service setting to do that. Um, and the defence of the company is that they're doing extra cleaning, they say, um, of these touchpads. But our members have been recording a lot of what's happening and there are some shifts where they might not get cleaned at all, they may only get cleaned once or they may be cleaned but it's one rag being used to, to wipe down everything which is not um, allowing for proper, proper sanitising of these spaces. So that's been a real concern to us. The deep cleans that they do, you know, they tell us that they're using sanitizer, they tell us that they're cleaning all of the highly touched surfaces, they have people um, decked out in hazmat suits when they do them. Uh, we think that, like, hope, you know, we think that though that there should be uh, guidelines developed, there should be a clear standard, um, there should be communication with the union about what they're cleaning, what they're using, how they're cleaning it with, you know, members have a right to know so that they can best understand the, the safety of their workplace. And we don't think it's acceptable to only do the deep cleans uh, every so often or after we have a confirmed positive case. Um, actually, these deep cleanings should be happening 
regularly. Um, one of the challenges, of course, is that much like uh, the kind of outsourcing uh, of security guards, the uh, contractors, uh, cleaning is contracted out in the railways uh, to a company that's pretty renowned for its poor treatment of its workers um, and understaffing and under-resourcing these workers who have an extremely uh, difficult and important job right now. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when I'm trying to get my head around this dilemma that has become the debate we have to have about COVID-19. Elimination, suppression, death and disease or profit, the health of the people or the health of the economy. No, I'm being too dramatic, letting my biases show. The caring business class would say it's a debate we don't need to have because there's nothing to debate. We can't let the economy suffer from the disease, from the elimination of the disease. Uh, but that means people will suffer, die. We put to Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Worcester Cost Workers. We have to do all that we can to prevent that. She was deeply concerned for the public health. Uh, so that, that means we have to adopt an elimination policy, Jennifer. Let me clarify that. All that we can without interrupting business more than we already have. And don't forget, if profits were to collapse, then that would do untold damage to the health of those in the boardrooms. Their hearts mightn't stand it, mightn't be able to take the disaster. Do, do you want to see hard-working company directors suffering because a few selfish people think it's better not to get sick themselves? It took me a while to ask the next question because I had to think that one through a bit. Uh, so what message do you have for those selfish people? We have to know we've got to live with this thing and or die, Jennifer. There's no life on that economy. And don't forget, we, the caring business class, have centuries of experience in suppression. If we can suppress the wages and lives of the lazy, avaricious workers, whom we so care about and exist only to provide the, the dignity of work, then we can assist the government in suppressing the disease. The government, totally neutral in all this, agreed with the caring business class as big supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, said a strategy to eliminate coronavirus would cause the unemployment rate to double and ruin the economy. Um, what about the disease rate doubling and ruining lots of lives? That's exactly what suppression is all about, a balance between protecting the economy from illness and protecting people from an ill economy. And New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berry, lots of them, iterated Scuttle Them, a.k.a. Scummo's reason argument. She would not lock down the economy nor embrace an eradication strategy. So there it is. As the caring business class and their governments, those who know about these things, explain, there is no debate to be had other than from selfish people who think only about themselves and their self-interest. Elimination is impossible. Uh, but New Zealand has eliminated it as best as we can without a vaccine, and its economy is rolling along. New Zealand cheated. Scuttle them spoke for the knowledgeable. Uh, how? It adopted an elimination policy. However, showing his concern for those who survived the suppression, Scuttle Them announced this new addition to the list of job, 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 job programs this week, Job Trainer. 
one and a half billion to pick up the wages of apprentices, overcoming the caring employer's major objection to taking on apprentices, the fact that at the end of the week the bloody tyros expect to be paid. Uh, so what are the jobs that these people will be trained for that will be required in three or four years? We ask the Minister for being totally incompetent, Michaela Costa workers. Good, well-paid jobs. Uh, yes, but, but doing what? Work. Oh yes, she's so on top of all that. Jennifer said the caring business class welcomed the government paying their wages bill. Eliminating our requirement to pay wages is one elimination we do support. She was all smiles. Of course, given the planned feature of capitalism, by the time the job trainers are job trained, it might turn out to be another to add to the job, 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 job list. Job destroyer. The construction industry, caring employers, should suffer no penalty from the coronavirus by not suffering any penalty, while lazy, avaricious workers should suffer a penalty by not having a penalty. That dilemma sounds like a trick question, doesn't it? But it's not. It's very simple and very sensible. It's a brilliant idea by the Master Builders Profits Association and the Housing Industry Profits Association and their members because the pandemic has slowed down the wage slavery, or so, sorry, the, the building process and progress. See, distancing and lifts slows things down, causing, quote, significant delays pushing up subcontractors' costs due to, in some instances, either having to pay overtime or penalty rates to their employees so they can complete their work without causing disruptions to other trades on the job. Tony Grippy, real name of Richard Crooks Construction, a most unfortunate name, I would have thought, spoke for the caring employers, and worse, Regular cleaning of lunchrooms and workstations between shifts has also led to significant disruptions to workflow. It is my experience that this has also had the effect of slowing down and reducing productivity on construction sites. Well, it wouldn't be slowing down productivity in the boardrooms, would it, where the real hard work is done, but don't our hearts go out to the poor dears? Always innovative, showing why their caring employers and lazy avaricious workers are lazy avaricious workers. They have found a most inspired solution. Get rid of overtime and penalty rates. Longer hours to compensate for all those delays, but without penalty rates, because that would be so grossly unfair to the caring employers. After all, they're not responsible for the pandemic. A sensible, logical solution, and what do the evil unions say to that? You guessed it. The bloody evil unions oppose it. <laughs> Want to be a caring employer in this environment? After all, the profits associations told us thousands of jobs are at risk and they need temporary flexibility to weather the storm. And the evil recalcitrant unions were unreasonable response. Caring employers were exploiting the virus to attack conditions they screeched. What other choice have caring employers got? Never any give or take with evil unions is there. And even demanded to see pay slips and wage records. None of their bloody business. And after caring employers slaved for hours thinking up a win-win solution to the problem. Yet there are still those committed to socialism, misguided souls, and in the sacrifices great socialists make in the never-ending fight to defend working people, 
former socialist big supremo little Kevin Rod for the workers and partner to raise reigning, reigning profits have just bought themselves a little noose of beachfront pad to ensure they have a roof over their heads and we can't begrudge them that for a mere 17 million. Well, they now have to flog the Brisbane CBD apartment they bought four years ago for a lousy 8.2 million. Five bedrooms and seven bathrooms it has. Not, not sure why you'd need seven bathrooms, but little Kebby and Teresa's new humble working workers' cottage little pad has space for only seven vehicles. Not sure why. Oh, never mind. A massive balcony, an opulent marble on suite, floor-to-ceiling, glass-enclosed dining room, panoramic ocean views, home theatre, study, media room, and a climate-controlled wine cellar. They need all of that. Need to struggle along with all of that, because right now they're stuck in true blue and can't return to their home in New York. Don't great working-class heroes make giant sacrifices for their beliefs. On those with a few little rooms at home, as the palace letters revealed Her Most Gracious Majesty had no idea, which we didn't need 45-year-old correspondents to tell us, in this case, no idea of the dismissal of a rabid socialist threat to the US of the UN of the US of the world hegemony in True Blue Aussie, no idea other than it was done in her name. He was her. Her Most Gracious Majesty has come up with a new nice little earner at the palace to subsidise the huge doll payment she gets from her subjects, a $73 a bottle Royal Collection Trust Gin flavoured with plants from the palace garden, which can be snapped up at the palace shop. Apparently she's inherited her mother's taste in the liquid juniper berry. Was that smile an inbred grin or just the sign of too much gin? Or more likely to be true, a combination of the two. Anyway, as Humphrey mused in Casablanca, of all the gin joints in all the world, the Buckingham gin joint. I'm sure on your behalf, listener, we wish her most gracious well in her latest endeavour to keep the wolf from the door. Finally, apropos of nothing much, in one result of suppression trumping elimination, SBS News the other night told us three meatworks had become COVID hotspots and get the full story on the feed, which I just found interesting. Oh, speaking of trumping, we haven't mentioned him, but do we have to? No, it's probably better that way. Good morning.
You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community news and music station. Andrew Fowler's book, The Most Dangerous Man in the World, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks' Fight for Freedom, is a thoroughly engrossing book. Very easy read, but of course the information's just gripping. It has been updated to take in the latest traumatic imprisonment of Julian Assange in Belmarsh High Security Prison in London. I spoke to Andrew about his book and the broader issues of justice and injustice in the free world. You've uh, been uh, working with this story for quite a long time because uh, you've done a variety of stories for different uh, outlets, including Four Corners and places like that. So um, can you give us an idea of uh, the whole research pro- uh, process for your book? Well, Annie, the whole research process for my book, I suppose, began when I was working for Foreign Correspondent. And I, I did a program about an Air France crash when a plane went into the South Atlantic and I noticed on the web there was a, a document which was um, held by WikiLeaks. And I'd never heard of this organization before. This was back in 2009. And I, <laughs> I eventually um, got the document. It was very significant. Um, and that was the beginning of the relationship. I made um, contact with WikiLeaks after the collateral murder video was released in April 2010 thought that was a very significant piece of information and was surprised how it really disappeared um, um, in the mainstream media area. So I persuaded Foreign Correspondent to do a program on WikiLeaks and that's when it really started. Um, After that program went to air, we interviewed Julian Assange in Melbourne, um, not far from Melbourne University and just around the corner from where he was living. And that went to air, and consequently, subsequent to that, I got a um, a call from Melbourne University Press, and they asked me if I'd write a book. And that's when the whole thing started to, um, the research project, if you like, began, because I wrote the first part of the book um, on the run, um, actually in London, um, on buses, on trains, um, <laughs> on planes, Flying to the United States, we interviewed Daniel Ellsberg, and so it was. A, it was. A, it was like a diary, just running through. And if you read the book, you can see there's that sort of. It's just uh, one day after another, and this extraordinary revelatory journalism that's being produced by this um, then little-known organisation, um, working with the Guardian and Le Monde, and, and eventually at times the New York Times, um, revealing these extraordinary stories about all the evidence of the war crimes being committed in the Middle East. So that was how the bedrock, if you like, of the research started. And then from then on, I kept an interest in WikiLeaks over the years. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I was thinking about it's 14 years, really, that you're covering. And um, from a journalist's point of view, it's just mind-blowing, isn't it? The uh, the Not only the events, but also needing to uh, deal with all the players. You spoke to practically all the main players. Yeah, I have spoken to them all. Well, not all of them, obviously. Some I don't know, but I've spoken to many different people. I I actually travelled to what was then old East Germany um, to interview Daniel Domscheit-Berg, who figures somewhat prominently. He was the so-called deputy to to, to Assange in the early days. And um, I must say, I... uh, I interviewed him a couple of times and his story changed 
many times, and um, in the end, I understood why Assange told him to leave WikiLeaks because um, he seemed to be problematic. And yet, I see he surfaces as like an authority on WikiLeaks at times, and I don't think he's he's credible. Um, but I interviewed also um, uh, many other people, including Daniel Ellsberg, who was um, a bit of a mentor of, of Assange, although he felt he was closer to what Bradley Manning did as the whistleblower. Um, Assange actually did reach out to him. They, they did have conversations. And I suppose that if you look at all the people I spoke to, um, I thought Ellsberg said one of the most significant things in retrospect, at the time I wasn't so sure, but when Julian Assange was saying that um, secrecy inside large corporations and governments would, um, if exposed, their wrongdoings, those secret wrongdoings, they would collapse on the, on the failure of their own systems. And that would free information and people could see the truth and what was going on. What Ellsberg said is, and he told Assange that it's on the contrary, just the reverse will happen. They will put up stronger and stronger barriers to prevent the information about their malfeasance being revealed to the outside world. And what we've seen is just that. Just as WikiLeaks exposed information um, almost in real time, instead of having to wait 20, 30 years or even longer for, um, for material to be released, and even then, not totally released, redacted very often, what WikiLeaks provided was almost a, like a contemporary um, um, evidential note of, of, of history. So people could form their conclusions in their own lifetimes about material that was uh, being, had been hidden from them, but which they had a right to know about. And, and I think that that's the great strength that WikiLeaks brought to journalism, um, plus the fact that it actually published the reports that it wrote, and then it published alongside them the documents based on those reports. And as a scientist would say, it was so that the reader could make up their own minds about whether the story was slanted or whether it was accurate or not. And um, I, I think that as a journalist, that was one of the great um, strengths that WikiLeaks has brought to journalism. I think so too. Uh, Ellsberg, you actually quote Ellsberg and it came back into my head, which was that Julian was looking at it with 39-year-old eyes, not 79-year-old eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, Ellsberg is an extraordinary character. I mean, I interviewed him for an hour and interviewed me for two hours. And, you know, he's asking me about my politics, where do I stand and all this sort of stuff. And I said, well, it depends where I... And I thought, this is extraordinary. I mean, Ellsberg, this, this extraordinary, powerful courageous person um, asking me my opinion on things and depending what I told him where I well when I'm in Australia I'm seen as being on the extreme left when I'm in France I'm seen as being on the extreme right <laughs> so somewhere in the middle somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean is probably where I'm perfectly balanced um, but it was very interesting meeting him and I, and I think he's you know he's he's been a supporter of, of uh, WikiLeaks work for a long time and spoken out about it and, and supported um Edward Snowden as well. So it's um it's good to have older people like you know like Ellsberg out there, you know, um, basically continuing the same struggle that he fought all those years ago to release information about the Vietnam War for the public to know the truth about. Yeah, it's interesting because you've used the uh, term that was given to him 
the most dangerous man in the world. Yes. And the mantle has now seriously yeah. been given over to Julian Assange. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Kissinger um, called Daniel Ellsberg, that's Henry Kissinger, the National Security Advisor to the disgraced former President Richard Nixon, um, um, gave him the mantle, the most dangerous man in America. And I put it to us to, um, we put it to Daniel Ellsberg, look, um, if, if you were the most dangerous man in America, does that make Julian Assange the most dangerous man in the world? Which he said, yes, it does, and he should be proud to, uh, to wear it as a mantle. Yeah. And um, I think that uh, he's, I mean, the problem with, for Julian Assange, of course, is that, you know, it, it has been a dangerous life and and he is now in danger. He's in he's in terrible danger. And and not just as a journalist, do I feel this, but also as a as a human being, I think the way he's being treated is quite appalling um, on multiple of levels. I mean, not just politically, you can look at the way that the politics works in the world. But when you look at the human being and an Australian being held in a maximum security cell in London for, for revealing the truth about providing evidence for war crimes allegations against the very country that wants to take him into their judicial system. I mean, there must be something wrong with that for a start. Well, it's interesting you um, should say that but, because... Um, He's the personification of the individual versus the bullying and arguably the illegitimate power of the state, which is one of the things that was a core motivator for him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, well, the belligerence and the bullying and the and the and the way in which I mean, just look at the present judicial system in the United Kingdom, and you've got somebody, um, Lady Arbuthnot, who's the chief magistrate for the area in which Julian Assange now falls, um, her relationship with the military um, um, industrial establishment um, is so strong. Her husband sits in the House of Lords, is on the Security Committee. Um, he had a business relationship with a senior member of British intelligence. Um, and the, clearly the law says, or the guidance for the magistrates is that if you're at all compromised, particularly in family matters, no matter how distant, you should absent yourself from the case. Well, she still sits as the titular head of the decision-making body under which Julian Assange is being prosecuted. Um, it, and the way he's been treated in court is, is shocking. He's, he's, he's being held in a, a, a cell where um, I'm told for 23 hours a day um, to get to speak to his lawyers when he can. He has to cross a whole complex of the prison, Belmarsh prison, um, past people where COVID is endemic in the prison. Someone, one person actually died there. He has a chest problem, which he's had at least since 2012. And, and he can't even sit in the well of the court because the judge won't let, the magistrate won't let him and won't let him out on bail. I mean, it's, it's very rough justice. And you want, to ex, you want to extradite him to the United States where the president just releases <laughs> felons and liars who are his friends. Imagine what they do to Assange, who's not a friend. It's interesting, too, because uh, you're very meticulous in your book. Uh, you uh, go through all of the different uh, personal charges against him. You know, uh, I actually wrote a whole list of the things that, you know, he's supposedly supposed to be like, you know, like he's got hubris and he's a control freak and he's imperious and all these ridiculous things, right? 
uh, as if this is a reason for why he should be treated the way he is. But one of the ones that was most interesting was naivety. Uh, it reminds me of a thing a person told me a long time ago when I was young. N never apologise for being kind, right? Um, and it's a bit like naivety um, in the sense that... Because, uh, you know, you feel like you're an unsophisticated person. But looking at his naivety is really interesting because at the same time, these people like Hillary Clinton and others, you know, are going, um, how dare you expose us? We're very powerful. And it reminded me why they wrote the story, The Emperor Has No Clothes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because only somebody who's naive would actually dare to speak the truth. And, I, and that's quite right. I mean, I think Julian at times is naive, but it's a great quality. Uh, but a dangerous quality to have as a journalist. It just means that you you say, well, this is wrong. I need to expose it. And I need to need to investigate. No matter what the circumstances are, it's my job. My calling is to is to investigate the rich and powerful. That's what that's my opinion. What journalists do, no matter which country they're in, they always look at the people with the guns and the money and the influence. Otherwise, it's not journalism. It's just public relations. And that's Assange's view. Um, and if that's a naive view, well, maybe journalism is naive and maybe journalists have become too sophisticated. Um, sophisticated not being a very kind word to use about somebody involved in sophistry. And I think increasingly our journalism has become quite sophisticated instead of right, quite kind of crude and direct um, and unsophisticated. It is, uh, a Assange's yeah, it is a polemic on the role of journalism. I mean, journalist, collaborator. Hmm. You mean the book? No, uh, the. Con I mean, I, I was thinking about it because, you know, I, I, I do try to report on things as well within my own sphere. And I see the same thing, if it's large or small. He put himself in great danger, but he was uh, he threw a stone and he walked to it. He did a quite a remarkable and marvellous thing. But now all the powers that be are saying, we're going to make sure that nobody else does this because we should have impunity. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, and I think the, the grave um, mistake that, although this runs counter to Ellsberg's theory, the grave mistake that the state would make would be to make itself more and more self-contained and, and, and less and less able to be leaked from uh, because people will continue leaking. I mean... You can't teach your children, as Ed Snowden was taught, to uphold the constitutional values of the United States, then send him overseas. And when he raises some of the constitutional issues about the Fourth Amendment, for example, um, unreasonable search, and then say, oh, well, no, that's, that's not, you know, don't worry about that. We, we don't bother about that. Let's put it to one side. And he says, no, no, I'm actually, I uphold the Constitution. And of course, the United States does not hold, uphold the Constitution when it comes to operating overseas, when it sends its people overseas. It breaks its constitutional values. And so therefore, they're producing, if you like, people in America and the United States who uphold the Constitution, all of its wonderful qualities, send them overseas, and then they ask them to break them. And, and people don't like doing that. They're conflicted. And Snowden was conflicted. And eventually he said he couldn't live in a world where... Everything was known about everybody all the time. He had to speak out. And no matter what happens to him, he said, that's it. I'm, I feel I have discharged my duty 
I have done the right thing by telling the world what America and the United States was doing. Um, I mean, Assange said, um, I think somewhat humorously, he said um, about um, how, how far he was prepared to go to, um, to, to defend WikiLeaks. He talked to the staff about, you know, we're prepared to die for all this and fight for it. And, and I think that that's probably true. I think that he believes so much in the cause that he he will um, he will do that. He will he will fight it to the end. I mean, he really has no alternative at the moment. He's up against a, a terrible terrible system that that is trying, I believe, to kill him. Um, as Niels Metzer, the the uh, Professor Niels Metzer, who carried out the UN. Rep- report on torture uh, uh, said that uh, he'd never seen so many large powerful countries gang up on one individual which is mainly the five eyes countries a security alliance which Australia and the United States is part um, to destroy one person and that's what it's come down to this is a battle this is a fight to the death and and I would like the Australian government to stand up to this uh, regime in Washington at the moment, and call it out and and speak up for one of its citizens who's being held in terrible circumstances um, as a way of expressing the sovereignty of Australia. How can the United States reach out across the world as it can into Australia or any other country where it deems that a journalist, for example, has published material that damages the security of the United States and extradite them. How can it, how can it do that? That's how far the law reaches. And then argue that they don't, that they shouldn't be protected by the constitution. They're actually arguing that Assange isn't a journalist and therefore can't, uh, and a foreigner is not a foreigner, is a foreigner and therefore can't be covered by the constitution to protection of the first amendment. I mean, this is shocking as an Australian citizen, to hear that argument and to hear nothing from our government, nothing from the foreign minister on this issue, except that due process is being followed, or to quote the Prime Minister, Assange must um, face the music. It's pretty outrageous, isn't it? I mean, this is extraordinary stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. It is, I mean, it's, not, it's kind of outrageous, but it's just, it's, it is truly, I mean, I've seen a lot of things in my time. I've been a reporter for nine or 50 years, and I had never seen such a clear example of wrongful action by my state. Yeah, I mean, you can quote, of course, you know, there's the Witness K, Bernard Caleri case, and the secret trial, there's the rest of it. I mean, and that's, and that's terrible stuff in itself, and that's another issue. But the Assange issue, is just simply about journalism and what journalists do all the time to hold governments to account. And if you take that away, you do it at your peril. You do it at your peril because you take away the right of journalists to be the safety valve, to slow down the you know the run to war. You. You'll do that at your peril because because we'll be involved in more foreign wars and there'll be more problems than we can possibly deal with. Journalism is a safety valve, and you're and you're shutting it off, and you're trying to shut it down by persecuting Julian Assange. And it may work up to a point, 
but one way or the other, one way or the other, it's going to come undone. I think. Now, for him, uh, I mean, there's all these large issues, but for him as a human being, this is a very slow mm. uh, process of annihilation, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's torture. I mean, it's been called torture by many people. Psychologically, Julian Assange has been damaged already, and his health isn't good. Um, how he's managed to hold up in any in any form whatsoever, seven years in the embassy and over a year in this hellhole called Belmarsh, um, I've no idea. It just goes to show an extraordinary strength of character, uh, and uh, matched by by his extraordinary intellect um, and his capability to to keep going is. Is, is um, an example to us all when we might complain about the minor irritations of life. Thanks for talking to me. I mean, I, I don't even know what... I mean, I know that people uh, are writing him letters. I know that uh, people are talking uh, out. It's interesting because there was a, a little period where everybody said nothing and I re went to the socialist uh, Marxist conference and there was... Uh, a presentation about it and I played it on my on my show uh, and it was like hmm. you're walking you you're pushing against a heavy wave where you're not supposed to say nice things about him and you sort of think to yourself look what this person's done I mean he's amazing hmm. unbelievable sure sure and um, it is unbelievable and what's the point what is the point of being a journalist if you don't stand up to power and expose wrongdoing. There is no point because it's difficult work. It's arduous. You very often don't have many friends. <laughs> you, um, you offend people um, and the money's not that good. You earn a lot more money with a lot less stress working for a large multinational company. But it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the important work to do. And it's fascinating. And if you're not going to do it, then get out of the way and let somebody else do it. <laughs> because, well, journalists have got too close to power. We, you know, they become celebrities. They become, they're invited to meet the prime minister. They have dinners with, you know, large corporations. I mean, don't have dinners with the boss. Go and talk to the person who's the commissioner who knows the comings and goings in the building or, you know, that's the way of journalism as far as I understand it. Um, get to know the people who are the dissenters. Don't, don't talk to people in authority because all they'll give you is the company line. And we know the company line because they've got a lot of PRs to put it out there and a lot of friendly journals printing it. It's boring. I mean, it's just not, it's, it's misleading and boring. Why do it? Why bother?
Solidarity Breakfast for this week. I hope you are coping with the new lockdown situation. Keep safe and we will be back together next week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.